You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 359 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As you guys will recall, at the end of the last show, our attention was focused on the northern end of the Federal's fishhook line of defense. It was late afternoon, July 2nd, the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg, when Longstreet's attack on the Union left finally got underway. And so Dick Ewell, finally, kicked off his demonstration against Cemetery Hill and Culp's Hill. Ewell kicked off his demonstration not by launching his infantry against the Yankees, but by bombarding them with his artillery instead. As y'all recall, we talked about the rebel guns on Benner's Hill, commanded by 19-year-old Major Joseph Latimer, who was mortally wounded by federal counter-battery fire. We said that although the Confederate artillery fire didn't have the desired effect, Ewell nevertheless thought the time had come to send in his infantry and convert his demonstration into a real attack. His plan called for Allegheny Johnson to attack Culp's Hill, and once Johnson's men became fully engaged, Then, Jubal Early would launch an attack up the eastern slopes of Cemetery Hill. Completing Yule's assault would be troops from Robert Rhodes' division, who would hit Cemetery Hill from the northwest, even as Early's men assaulted it from the east. By now it was 6 p.m. On the opposite end of the line, Barksdale's Mississippians were just then striking at the peach orchard. Here, Dick Yule gave the orders for his men to attack. The Confederate soldiers of Allegheny Johnson's division stepped off first, advancing in a southwesterly direction toward Culp's Hill. To protect his flank, Johnson was forced to leave behind the 1,300 men of the Stonewall Brigade, meaning that he went forward with only three of his brigades, some 4,700 men in all. As Johnson described it, quote, I then advanced my infantry to the assault of the enemy's strong position, a rugged and rocky mountain, heavily timbered and difficult of ascent, a natural fortification. 
John M. Jones Virginians advanced on the right, Jesse Williams Louisianans were in the center, and George Maryland Stewart's mixed brigade of Virginia, North Carolina, and Maryland regiments was on the left. As we said previously, as the hours had ticked by on that Thursday, the rebels, as they waited in tense anticipation, could hear the federal soldiers on Culp's Hill felling trees and throwing up breastworks on the hilltop, turning Culp's Hill into a veritable fortress. But what the Confederates didn't know when they stepped off to the attack was that the enemy situation on the hill had changed, um, significantly. That's because by then George Meade's attention, and worries, were focused exclusively on his endangered left flank, where, thanks to Sickles' blunder in advancing the Third Corps to a vulnerable position, the Union line was in real danger. Meanwhile, though, while Confederate artillery was pounding his right, there was no immediate threat there, so Meade had sent urgent instructions to 12th Corps commander Henry Slocum, telling him to move his men south to help out at the other end of the line. Believing that sending troops to the other end of the line might open the door for the rebels to seize Culp's Hill, and more importantly, the Baltimore Pike beyond, Slocum suggested that at least one division remain behind on the hilltop. But Meade, apparently willing to accept the risk to his right in order to meet the crisis on his left, told Slocum he could leave behind just one brigade on Culp's Hill and to send the rest of his men southward. And that's how it happened that by 6 p.m., just about the time Allegheny Johnson's Confederates were preparing to advance, most of the Federal 12th Corps, five of its six brigades, had marched off, away from Culp's Hill, leaving only the 1,300 New Yorkers of George Green's brigade as the sole defenders of the hilltop. Told to hold Culp's Hill at all cost, Green spread his five regiments thin, stretching them south down the hillside in order to occupy as much of the vacated breastworks as possible, while also calling on nearby 1st and 11th Corps units for help. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. 
Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produced the podcast My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. The sun was already far down in the western sky when the two sides collided. Jones and Williams' Confederates on Allegheny Johnson's right and his center were the first to make contact with the Yankees. Coming under a pesky fire from the Federal skirmishers, the rebels advanced through brush and briar, returning the fire and ultimately driving Green's skirmishers back up the hillside to their main line of defense. The Virginians and Louisianans next waded across the waist-deep waters of Rock Creek before beginning the tough climb up the boulder-strewn slopes of Culp's Hill, drawing a lively fire from the New Yorkers above. The steep, tree-covered terrain, littered with boulders, disrupted the Confederate alignments, and in the gathering shadows of twilight, with the hillside covered in smoke, It wasn't long before all became confusion and chaos, with many of the participants writing that they could detect the enemy's position only by the flashes of their muskets. Green's Federals, well protected behind their breastworks up the hillside, blazed away as the Confederates inched their way up the slopes. However, despite their best efforts, there was little Jones or Williams' men could really do, The terrain in that sector was simply too difficult, and the New Yorkers' position too strong. Jones fell with a nasty thigh wound, and it wasn't long before his Virginians withdrew down the hillside toward Rock Creek. Williams' Louisianans, to the Virginians' immediate left, faced slightly less challenging ground and were able to work their way to within 100 yards of the Federal's line, but they too were unable to make a dent in the strong enemy position. The repulse of Jones and Williams left only Maryland Stewart's brigade on Allegheny Johnson's left, still with any real chance of cracking the enemy position. But when the Confederate attack began, the rough terrain they encountered caused Stewart's brigade to split into two pieces. The 3rd North Carolina and 1st Maryland Battalion on the right of Stewart's line crossed Rock Creek alongside Williams' Louisianans, and like them, they also came under a heavy fire as they neared the federal position. The North Carolinians and Marylanders found themselves in a difficult spot. Approaching the saddle of ground between the taller and lower summits of Culp's Hill, they were taking fire from Federals to their front and from the 137th New York on their left. The 137th, under Colonel David Ireland, had taken up position on the far right of Green's line and in the breastworks recently vacated by Kane's Federals on the hilltop's lower summit. From there, Ireland's men poured a destructive fire into the left of Stewart's right two units, and the Confederates, said one eyewitness, quote, reeled and staggered like a drunken man. 
Men fell like autumn leaves, said a soldier in the 1st Maryland Battalion, but the situation would soon change when the remaining four regiments of Stuart's brigade caught up. Lurching forward in the gathering darkness after finally wading Rock Creek and seeking to reconnect with the rest of the brigade, their advance brought them bearing down directly on Ireland's exposed right flank. The 137th New York, holding the extreme right end of the Union line on Culp's Hill, was in danger of being flanked. Like Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain on Little Round Top earlier in the day, David Ireland here refused his line to meet the developing threat, but still the oncoming Confederates far overlapped his regiment's exposed right flank. Sure enough, rebel soldiers from the 10th Virginia managed to work their way around the flank of the 137th New York, and coming under pressure from two sides and having already lost more than a hundred men, Ireland ordered his beleaguered regiment to fall back to the traverse that had been constructed partially up the slope of the taller mountain. Green's right flank was being hard-pressed by the attacking Confederates. Ireland and his 137th New York held on tight behind the traverse as Stuart's rebels continued to feel their way up the hillside in the darkness. Then, sweeping down the darkened hillside to the right of the 137th, came the 6th Wisconsin and 14th Brooklyn, First Corps troops Wadsworth had sent in response to Green's pleas for assistance. The arrival of those two regiments, combined with the lateness of the hour and lack of support, compelled Stuart's Confederates to fall back to the empty breastworks on the lower summit. About 10 p.m., an uneasy quiet descended on Culp's Hill. Jones' Virginians settled in near Rock Creek, as did some of Williams' Louisianans, but many others remained pinned down on the slopes less than a hundred yards from the federal positions, forcing them to spend an uncomfortable night trying to make as little noise as possible, as even a hushed whisper might bring a rifle shot crashing down out of the darkness. Stewart's advance had brought several of his regiments directly into the line of breastworks, vacated earlier that evening when most of the 12th Corps had marched off to the south. Now, in these captured positions, Stuart's Confederates settled in for what proved to be a nerve-wracking, tense night, clinging to their tenuous foothold on the lower summit of Culp's Hill. It wouldn't be long before the 12th Corps men began to reappear on the scene, returning from their trip south and expecting to take up their previous spots on the hillside, largely ignorant of the fact that the rebels now held those positions. This caused more confused and violent encounters in the darkness. The surprised Yankees at first thought they were being fired on by their comrades in Green's brigade, and only with much difficulty and some losses did the federal officers get the situation sorted out. By about midnight, the displaced 12th Corps troops, mostly from Geary's division, had come to accept the fact they would have to settle in where they were as best they could for the remainder of the night, while both sides understood that the matter of the possession of Lower Culp's Hill was far from settled, and that the fight here would be renewed at first light. 
Allegheny Johnson's attack on Culp's Hill had ended, but that was only one part of Dick Yule's plan, because as y'all will recall, Yule also had his sight set on the keystone of the federal line, Cemetery Hill. Right. Jubal Early had been tasked with attacking Cemetery Hill from the east, and Old Jube waited until Allegheny Johnson was fully engaged, and then he ordered his men forward, stepping off sometime around 8 p.m. We'll wait until the next show to talk about the Confederate attack on Cemetery Hill on the night of July 2nd. But here at the end of this show, we want to take a few minutes to talk about the order that sent most of the 12th Corps marching away from Culp's Hill. We think George Meade fought the Battle of Gettysburg incredibly well, especially considering how little time he had actually been in command of the Federal Army. But we also think he made two major blunders during the battle, both on July 2nd. Meade's first blunder was in not paying closer attention to what Dan Sickles was doing down at the southern end of the federal line. Sickles was making enough discontented rumblings on the morning of the 2nd that it should have been obvious to Meade that Sickles needed closer supervision. In Meade's defense, though, he should have been able to expect that a corps commander in the Army of the Potomac would follow orders in establishing his line and not go off half-cocked and make a wholly unauthorized and ill-advised advance of his men to an entirely new and vulnerable position. However, Meade's other major mistake on July 2nd is less excusable. After realizing the danger that Sickles' boneheaded move caused to the Federal left, Meade quickly ordered the V Corps and portions of the Second into that fight. Meade also summoned assistance from the VI Corps, which was just arriving on the battlefield, and from Henry Slocum's XII Corps, which until then had been undisturbed in its works on Culp's Hill. How much help did Meade want from the XII Corps? Well, Meade himself never said, either in his official report or otherwise, but one Meade biographer wrote that he asked Slocum for a division. However, Slocum later insisted that Meade had ordered him to, quote, remove the entire 12th Corps from its position on the right to one on the left. It seems absolutely incredible that Meade would wish the entire 12th Corps to move off and leave Culp's Hill completely undefended. And yet that does seem to be the case. We're not big fans of Henry Slocum, but Slocum, to his credit, naturally thought it risky to leave Culp's Hill undefended. So he sent one of his staff officers, Lieutenant Colonel Hiram Rogers, galloping to Army headquarters to ask permission to leave one division on the hill. Rogers, though, returned with the message that Meade believed the Union left was the point of real danger, which it then certainly was, but that if Slocum deemed it absolutely crucial, he could leave behind not a division, but one brigade on Culp's Hill. Slocum accepted this decision and left behind George Green's New York Brigade to defend Culp's Hill, while the rest of the 12th Corps marched off to the south. 
Meade's order for the movement of the entire 12th Corps was ill-considered, to say the least. At the time it was given, Meade, to be sure, could see that his left and center were in real danger, while there hadn't been a serious threat to his right. And Slocum didn't make the case for holding more than a division back to defend Culp's Hill. But still, Meade's decision was unwise, and he was very fortunate that it didn't result in the loss of the hilltop. Instead, in response to Green's call for help, reinforcements swarmed in from the whole northern arc of the Union line, units from the 1st and 11th Corps, and even a regiment from the 2nd Corps, stumbled through the darkness at the best pace they could manage, steering usually towards some staff officer's idea of where they were needed. Enough of them arrived and got into the fight, however, to render vital help to Green's hard-pressed brigade, and in the end, in fighting that sputtered to a fitful halt in darkness as black as midnight, George Meade could thank his lucky stars that the hard-fighting Yankee defenders had held on, and Allegheny Johnson's Confederates had failed to carry the hill. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Gettysburg, Culp's Hill, and Cemetery Hill by Harry W. Fans. No Gettysburg bookshelf is complete without Fans's trio of excellent volumes, Gettysburg the First Day, Gettysburg the Second Day, and Gettysburg, Culp's Hill, and Cemetery Hill. So if you don't have all three already, run, don't walk, run right out and get them. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up the show, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Jean H., Justin G., Jamie H., and Rory D., and Gabe N., Charles R., and Jerry F. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Gettysburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.